podcast one production. I'm Adam Shand, and this is episode two of Understate Lawyer X. What motivated Nicola Gobbo to become an informer against her own clients? She came from a privileged background in the law. Her uncle, Sir James Gobbo, was a Supreme Court judge and a former governor of Victoria. Her surname gave Nicola an enormous advantage as she entered Melbourne University's law school in the early 1990s. But in 1993, police raided a house she was sharing in inner-city Carlton with her boyfriend and another man. They found nearly one and a half kilos of speed and more than 10 ounces of marijuana. Gobbo's career was about to go up in smoke, but police offered her a way out. Give information against her boyfriend and she would escape without a conviction entered. She received a good behaviour bond. In 1995, the house was raided again and more drugs were recovered. Gobbo wasn't charged, but once more she was very helpful to police. And this time, she was formally registered as an informer. In 1998, at just 25, Gobbo was admitted to the Victorian bar, the youngest woman ever. Having been part of the illicit drug world, it's not surprising drug traffickers and gangsters sought her out. She was hard-working, streetwise and available all hours. It was inevitable that her two worlds, the privileged legal set and the underworld, would eventually collide. Six years into her career, Gobbo made a decision that would eventually destroy that career and put her life in danger. first question to ask, was Gobbo paid for her informing? If not, it looks like the worst deal ever. In 2015, Gobbo cleared that up in a letter to a senior police officer. An actor is playing Gobbo. For the avoidance of any doubt, during the time I was working as an informant for the Victoria Police, with the exception of a couple of token thank yous, including a pen, I, unlike any other informer, did not receive any financial assistance or support to enable me to work as an informer. In fact, the contrary is true. I paid for all kinds of things that police usually provide finance for, such as incessant phone calls to criminals, entertaining, coffees, not alcohol, countless trips to prison, etc. But there was also the prospect of getting cash rewards for shopping her clients to the police. So the expenses she incurred were an investment in the future, she believed. I took no issue with this at the time because Detective Inspector assured me this would all be taken into account whenever I finished and made an application for a reward. As I hope you're aware, I helped because I was motivated by altruism rather than for any personal gain. That rings hollow when you know she was seeking rewards while also taking the money of the hapless clients she was betraying, a number of whom were relying on public funding through legal aid. It's been suggested that police had some kind of leverage over her, but she claims she offered her services freely. I did not approach the police because I had committed, nor have I since, any crime for which I required some kind of get-out-of-jail-free card 
as is most often the reason people choose to assist police. The fact was Gobbo very much enjoyed the company of police, perhaps even more than the villains she represented and partied with. Sergeant Tim Argyll had registered her as an informant in 1995. Soon they were meeting regularly for drinks, he told the Royal Commission in 2019 under questioning. There was an occasion in about 1997 where you had um, uh, an episode of physical intimacy with her, if we can put it that way. Yes. Yeah, okay. Now, was that the only occasion that occurred? Yes. Subsequent to that, um, did you meet her on a regular basis um, uh, and interact with her? Yes. In 1996, an assistant commissioner wrote that Gobbo was a loose cannon because she made her own arrangements and did not liaise with investigators. This didn't deter police from using her off and on for a decade. She even dobbed in her former employer for rorting legal aid. In letters to the police, Gobbo listed 10 achievements as an informer covering hundreds of cases. Let's examine a few of those in detail from her role in stopping the gangland war to helping police intercept massive shipments of drugs into this country. On the surface, her claims have some merit, but I'm left with a sense that she behaved more like a crook than a lawyer or an informant. I also want to examine her claim that she did not breach client privilege. In some cases, her argument is patently absurd. In those, she sold her clients out to the police cold. But in other cases, she behaved like a classic informer or even an undercover operative, a mole inside a criminal gang. She was party to criminal conspiracies that had nothing to do with the cases she was involved in as a lawyer. And then she dobbed in the bad guys to the cops. Sometimes the police acted on this information and sometimes they didn't. She knew how this would all look if it was made public. In her 2015 letter, she warned Victoria Police of the consequences of the public disclosure of her activities. It is in no one's best interest for my role and the involvement as an informer slash human source to be detailed in a writ or explored in civil proceedings. This is why Victoria Police fought so hard to keep Gobbo's informer status secret for years. They said it was to protect her safety, but there's no doubt that senior officers going right to the Chief Commissioner knew how this would look on the front page of a newspaper. That Gobbo had been given latitude to break the law in service of her handlers. To investigators desperate to end the gangland war, to have a glittering prize like Gobbo was heaven sent. In 2004, villains were being shot in the streets almost weekly. Corrupt police had formed relationships with the gang bosses and the cops, like Deputy Commissioner Simon Overland, were powerless. My actual assistance to Victoria Police began informally via Piranha, not long after the task force was initially formed. Gobbo formed a relationship with the dashing Piranha investigator, Detective Stuart Bateson. I met Detective Sergeant Bateson on a number of occasions starting in early 2004, at a time when the refusal to assist police by anyone involved or with any knowledge was frustrating investigators. What led me to do that was my own frustration with the way in which certain criminals like Carl Williams were seeking to control what suspects and witnesses could and could not do or say to police via solicitors who were not, in my view, acting in the best interests of their clients because of the undue influence and control of heavies such as Williams. Crime 
patriarch Louis Moran has been shot dead in an ambush inside a club in Brunswick in Melbourne's north. Witnesses said two men wearing balaclavas walked into the gaming venue and shot the 58-year-old who desperately tried to evade his assassins. Gobbo's client, Carl Williams, was on the final phase of his five-year killing spree. Flush with drug money, he felt untouchable. Paranoid and bloodthirsty, he decimated the rival Moran crime clan and celebrated in public, thumbing his nose at the police. Gobbo was happy to share the spotlight with him, as Stuart Bateson told the Royal Commission in 2019. But certainly we thought she was a close associate, uh, way beyond what we would expect from a normal lawyer client relationships. He socialised with them uh, and certainly she was a part of a small group of criminal lawyers that we believed um, were were willing to do anything to keep their clients out and operating their criminal enterprises. In Um, what way? How was that? Well, one one way, uh, certainly the providing advice to get around bail applications, subpoena arguments, discovering informers, acting outside uh, what I would have thought would be proper conduct from a legal practitioner and she was one of that group. Police were so suspicious of Gobbo, they put her under surveillance in the summer of 2003-04. They listened as she gave a speech at the delayed christening of Carl Williams' daughter Dakota at Crown Casino in December 2003. As Detective Bateson told the Royal Commission... The one that's most clear in my recollection is the christening of Carl Williams' daughter Dakota um, at Crown Casino when she was the MC and indeed in that um, social function showed a very close association to a number of criminals. Yeah, indeed. uh, I think you got a special mention at that function, didn't you? I did, yes. Detective Bateson was the reason the christening had been delayed. Williams had made threats against him in a phone call to his wife, Roberta, in November 2003. Actors are reading from a transcript of the call. If a sucker breaks in there or Bateson comes looking for me, mm-hmm. you know what to do, don't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Grab the gun from under the mattress, shoot them in the mm-hmm. head. You're a f- idiot. See ya. Next minute, we're going to have the f- four SOGs run in for the mattress. Love you. Bye. But you know what? What? You're the best wife and the best chick. Thanks, honey. The calls were intercepted by police and two days later, Williams was arrested in a dramatic swoop in Port Melbourne. Gobbo had represented Williams at the bail application, which was successful, and the christening was rescheduled. Months later, Gobbo had turned on Williams and began meeting with Bateson to plot her client's downfall. By May 2004, Williams was in jail facing four murder charges, and there were six other murders that he had possible involvement in. His paid killers were also in custody and Williams was hoping they would stay staunch and not tell tales on him. But in late 2003, Williams' henchmen had begun to talk. The first had been a driver in three murders on behalf of Williams. A Melbourne prisoner on remand for murder has been questioned over the execution-style killings of crime boss Jason Moran and an associate, Pasquale Barbaro. The man's barrister, Nicola Gobbo, said her client had been kept in solitary confinement in cells beneath the court since his arrest on October 25. At Gobbo's urging, this witness would betray Williams. At the time when Gobbo was purportedly trying to keep Williams out of jail for the same offences. After the driver began talking, others followed, and police began to gather evidence on a string of murders. From 2004, Gobbo put pressure on another key Williams gang member, whom we'll call Witness B. 
Witness B procured guns for three murders, including that of Carl's archenemy, Jason Moran. Facing three life sentences for murders when he hadn't pulled the trigger, he folded. He took the advice of his lawyer, Nicola Gobbo, and opened up like a watermelon falling off a truck. I provided Bateson with information that was of value to investigators in the months prior to suffering a stroke in late July 2004 and again afterwards. In the lead-up to my illness, I played a pivotal role in convincing to roll over on Williams and others and withstanding undue pressure from the Williams crew and Tony Mockbell to try to get him to stay silent. I kept Bateson informed of all of this including solicitors perverting the course of justice and conspiring with criminals to try to ensure a number of gangland murders would remain unsolved or uncharged. The reason why I got you here, right? I plead to something I haven't done, but I want you to put it all as a package deal. Whatever I know, I'll tell you. What I want is the cops to look after me. I've had enough. I can't fight anymore. I've got no more fight in me. No one else wants to do the right thing and put their hand in and tell them the truth, so what else am I going to do? Witness B made 16 statements in all. Piranha had racked up 53,000 hours of electronic bugging and 20,000 hours of physical surveillance trying to catch Carl Williams and his gang, but to no avail. And here was the evidence. They just had to sit back and listen. As has been documented in the years that followed deciding to help police, his actions in becoming a witness for police created a precedent for others to follow and was the crack in the damn wall of silence that led to a flood. He laid the foundation for the prosecution of numerous murderers and others followed his example. Witness B sketched the background plotting of the murders. He confessed to supplying weapons and setting up murders of the Moran clan. He implicated Carl's father, George, in the murder of Lewis Moran. And he told of luring another rival, Nick Radev, to a date with death in Coburg at the hands of two of Carl's hitmen. In one key case, he also helped police solve the 2002 murder of underworld legend Victor Pierce. Witness B said that the killer was Andrew Venuman. This story began in 2000, when Venuman murdered mafia-aligned market identity Frank Benvenuto. Witness B said... Andrew said that he met Frank in his car on the side of the road. He got in the passenger seat next to Frank, who was in the driver's seat, and he just shot him. About two years after Frank Benvenuto's murder, Andrew Venuman said he'd heard that Pierce had found out it was him who'd killed Frank and he was worried that Pierce was going to get revenge on him. Victoria Police seemed to be on top until Witness B was cross-examined on his statements in various cases and his story changed. Critical errors in his evidence discredited his version of events. Eventually, his handlers stopped believing him and a string of suspects were off the hook. Gobbo described her informing against the Carlton crew as a work in progress. But in 2019, it's continued to unravel. Farouk Orman was the only Carlton crew member to be jailed for a gangland murder, and that conviction collapsed in July 2019 after he'd spent 12 years in jail for his alleged part in the slaying of Victor Pierce. Alleged getaway driver Farouk Orman will be immediately released from jail because of a substantial miscarriage of justice caused by his double agent lawyer Nicola Gobbo, also known as Lawyer X. Victoria's Court of Appeal ordered Orman be released without delay after a hearing in Melbourne on Friday found he should be acquitted due to Gobbo's actions while she was representing him. Witness B told police 
police that Farouk Orman had been tasked with locating Pierce in order that hitman Andrew Venyaman could execute him. An actor is reading from Witness B's statement. We met up with Farouk at a convenience store in Port Melbourne. Andrew asked Farouk if he had any news about Pierce. Farouk said he couldn't find him and Andrew got angry and called him an idiot. On May 1st, 2002, Pierce was murdered as he sat in his car in a Port Melbourne street. Witness B told police that Venyaman had been the shooter and Orman the getaway driver. Witness B again. I was at home watching television when I heard about Victor Pierce being shot in Bay Street in Port Melbourne. Straight away, I thought it would have been Andrew and Farouk who killed Pierce. Venyaman was already dead when Orman was charged with the murder. Gobbo told her handlers that her client could be worn down and turned into a police witness. Orman was obsessive-compulsive with cleanliness, she said. He had a short temper and needed people around him. Her handlers noted that if he's left alone and in messy conditions, human source is positive he will not cope. He was thrown into solitary confinement on the pretext that one of the Pierce family had threatened his life. But Orman never broke. The authorities kept the heat on Carl Williams' henchmen. Marwen Jail was a pressure cooker with tough, almost inhumane conditions, designed to encourage a sense of doom and misery. Relief could be had simply by telling stories, and Gobbo was there to make sure that happened. She would come on professional visits to see a client and would end up speaking to a number of inmates and play them off against one another. Once the statements were obtained, Gobbo still wasn't finished. In one case, she admitted to altering statements in August 2008. I went to Piranha secretly one night and edited all his statements. I corrected them, but no one ever knows about that. That would never come out. Even doesn't know I did that. Mm. He could never reveal it because he doesn't know about it. And they were very good the way they did it because the detective I did it with was not a witness. So it can never come out with people just telling the truth. Yeah. It was well thought out. Carl Williams was beginning to smell a rat in 2006 and 2007, even writing to the Victorian Legal Services Board to complain about Gobbo's unethical behaviour. Despite this, he continued to meet Gobbo in Barwon Jail, even though Williams had a new lawyer by then. Gobbo was so paranoid about Williams' learning of her activities, she burgled the offices of his new lawyer, Sharon Cure. Counsel assisting the Royal Commission discussed this in evidence in August 2019. By this time, Gobbo felt vulnerable and unprotected by police. The Royal Commission has heard of the escalating threats Gobbo received in 2006, 2007 and 2008 from the Williams and Mockbell crews. Actors have voiced the text messages. Keep your mouth shut or die. Hey dog, we warned you not to call or talk to the pigs, but you being the dog called your boyfriend from Piranha. Now you'll get a dog, one in the head and one in the heart. Look out the window, dog, so I can put a couple in you, right? In 2008, Gobbo's car was set alight. A car belonging to prominent gangland lawyer Nicola Gobbo was set alight in front of passers-by and diners on the street last night. Miss Gobbo wasn't in the silver BMW convertible and no one was injured. After the fire, Gobbo received a sympathy card in her letterbox. Two rounds of ammunition were attached to the card. Some of her police handlers took the threats very seriously as former Piranha boss Gavin Ryan told the Royal Commission. I've certainly mentioned it uh, quite often to Simon Overland that I felt that she should be deregistered and moved overseas. And he certainly agreed and with you in you December know, 2006. Uh, because I felt that it's one wrong word, one wrong thing. Someone says something or, or someone puts two and two together and she's in a body bag. 
and I didn't want that on the head. She still had her supporters in the underworld, those prepared to give her the benefit of the doubt. It wasn't till about 2009 that doubt was erased. David McCulloch of my Jailhouse Lawyer podcast heard the debates raging inside Barwon Jail. She represented a lot of people who were doing a lot of years in Barwon. Some still trusted her. Some declared her, meaning prison slang for declared her as being an informer. A dog. And some who just couldn't bring themselves to believe because of their closeness as lawyer, client, and in some cases perhaps socially closer. She was more than just a lawyer, wasn't she? I think that was that was why it was hard to believe. To these people, the relationship was not just as a lawyer. She'd crossed the line. Oh, absolutely. They're now talking about her holding vast sums of money in the hundreds of thousands. I mean, on one visit in mid-2006, prison staff searching her car, and she's a lawyer, remember, they located $15,000 in cash. In 2011, the Chief Commissioner of the day, Christine Nixon, published her memoirs under the title Fair Cop. Cracking the underworld war through the Piranha Task Force had been her crowning achievement, she wrote. An actor is reading from her memoirs. Piranha made 230 arrests, laid more than 600 charges and seized more than $44 million in property. Their team cracked open the code of silence. The Piranha model became the way of the future. Part of Piranha's success was underwritten by the willingness to negotiate with the lawyers representing criminals, even hitmen, in order to get further through the chain to the people arranging the murders. This technique was not without its price. She wrote prophetically that... It could have dangerous and unintended consequences, as would become plain to all of us soon enough. At the time she wrote this in 2011, Victoria Police's star informer was already off the reservation and set to destroy the legacy of Christine Nixon and the integrity of the police force. She was certainly working for not just Victoria Police, but the Australian Federal Police. She was involved in an awful lot of things at the same time, apparently unbeknown to each agency also. But it also seems to be from what's coming out thus far at the Royal Commission that she may have been involved as part of some of those criminal liaisons. To me, she wasn't just a lawyer, she wasn't just the informer, she was an insider in both camps. She's the biggest double agent since Matahari, in my view. And I wonder whether we're ever going to get to the, the totality of what she was up to. The romantic liaisons, the talking to the police, talking to the villains, talking to everybody. What did she share with each one? I mean, this is a unique beast. This is massive. They will never, ever conclude unless the Commission's terms of references are extended and the time to deal with everything. This is absolutely massive, her involvement with all those different agencies, some unknown to each other, some suspected of her passing information back to those associates in the criminal underworld, and those she was involved with in the criminal underworld been unaware that she was in fact causing them not only to be charged, but causing them to suffer human rights abuses whilst they were incarcerated, to the extent of creating a situation where it was attacking the minds of some of those people in the horrendous conditions that were held, with the complicit involvement of Corrections Victoria under instruction from Victoria Police, I would be confident in saying they will find that there was 
political interference and they were aware of the involvement of Lawyer X at all levels and only through that could Victoria Police have had the authority to involve Corrections Victoria in the abuse of human rights for some of those inmates who will be found not to have had a fair trial. And in your opinion, is there evidence that in return for what she was prepared to give them, Victoria Police and other authorities were prepared to turn a blind eye to either her knowledge of or participation in drug trafficking and other criminal offences in the same period? I'm not sure if we can specify what crimes, but certainly an array of crimes. And there is enough of a suggestion to allow a reasonable inference that that is what was occurring. So as long as she did what they wanted her to do, she was getting a green light. That seems to be certainly the reasonable inference on what's come out so far. Gobbo's clients that she informed on were among Victoria's worst criminals, and police had little doubt of their guilt in the gangland murders. But in their haste to lock them up, they forgot that even the guilty deserve a fair trial. Perhaps I come from a different perspective from you and those who have never been to prison. But at some stage, that innocent person could be you or some of those people who have never been to prison, or even worse, family members. That's why we must address it and see that it never happens again. And the process has got to be transparent. I mean, it's the, the, the each and every defendant in Victoria should know how the case against them is compiled in order to defend themselves. And clearly, the operations of Nicola Gobbo and Victoria Police have meant that that's not the case in our state. You... This was a lady who I think you would have to say was not of sound mind. It's not that all of those people were not guilty of something. Some may have been. That's not what the argument is. The argument is, did they receive a fair trial? And no, according to law, it appears not. That's where we 100% agree. (laughs) It doesn't stop there. In episode three, I'll delve into Nicola Gobbo's informing on drug matters and her revelations on a drug shipment that brought a team of mafia hitmen to Victoria. Understate is written and produced by Adam Shand. Audio editing, mixing and original score by Matt Nikolic. Executive producer is Grant Tothill. Associate producer is Sarah Grinberg. Research by Nollywe Shand. Understate is a Podcast One Australia production.